Thanks for joining us. I'm Alan Burke, a landscape architect here in the Puget Sound region, and you are listening to the Green Meridian Podcast. We are really pleased today to have three senior associates from Field Operations, the internationally renowned firm that does work all over the world. Um, here in Seattle, they are responsible for the planning and coordination efforts around the new Seattle waterfront rebuild, which everybody's anticipating with with bated breath. And we'll have a we'll touch on that a little bit later. Um, they're known, as I said, for a wide range of large scale municipal and campus projects. And we're talking today with Alejandro Vasquez in New York City, uh, Justin Jackson in Philadelphia, and Seth Rodewald Bates from San Francisco. But I, I understand you're in Los Angeles now. You're just visiting, Seth. Uh, actually, on site today. So I see. Okay, I'm, I'm in LA in in person for a project down here. Welcome, you guys. Uh, appreciate you taking the time to uh, speak with Bill and I. Um, big fan of your work. Uh, and uh, can't get enough of the High Line, so you guys could you guys could coast on the High Line for another fifty years, I think, if uh, you you stuck with it. So we probably could. <laughs> yes, good stuff, uh, Alejandro. You're in New York City. A uh, little bio on you that I have blurbed out here: uh, University of Pennsylvania graduate, Florida International University. I'm a Floridian. Um, uh, and you have worked on the underlines half mile long phase one in Miami, the South Main Innovation District in Houston, Texas, uh, London's Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park, Miami Beach's Lincoln Road District, and Chicago's multi-phase Navy Pier. I understand you're a 2021 Forefront Fellow with the Urban Design Forum, and you are exploring now how to foster food equity in all the New York City neighborhoods, which sounds fascinating. Um, the, the website tells me that you are, quote, a meticulous and creative thinker who brings unparalleled thought to his craft and a collaborative approach to your projects, resulting in public spaces that are vibrant, distinctive, and highly memorable. I might just cut and paste that into my own bio. While <laughs> uh, and you're fluent in uh, English and Spanish and Catalan, which is fascinating. So Yes. Yeah, I was uh, fortunate to actually grow up between Miami and Barcelona, Spain. Wow. Um, and that's where a lot of my landscape inspiration, I guess, comes from, you know, like the cultural landscapes of the Mediterranean, you know, mixed with the tropical uh, vegetation and tropical nature of Miami. So a lot of, of my inspiration comes from that. Are you a fan of Garcia Lorca? Yes. I mean, who's I mean, not, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, Justin Jackson is visiting us uh, with us from Philadelphia, a graduate of Harvard and um I hate to say it, but being a being a Gator at the University of Georgia, so uh, we, we won't hold that against mm. you. But uh, we we welcome you here today. Go dogs! <laughs> and uh, your work includes the Georgetown Canal Plan in Washington D.C., Met Park in Arlington, and you manage the master plan for the Kennedy Center's public space in Washington D.C., uh, Arlington's National Cemetery Southern Expansion Project. And uh, uniquely, you've worked at botanical gardens and arboretums throughout the eastern U.S., so I imagine you're quite the horticulturalist uh, at heart. Is that right? 
Uh, I try. I do try. <laughs> I, I kind of started down the field of landscape uh, architecture as a horticulturalist. Yeah, same, same. I wish more LAs could say that. Uh, I think it's the best orientation to have starting out. And Seth Rodewald Bates is in Los Angeles uh, visiting a project site, but you're actually a San Francisco uh, person. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. For the last uh, re recently in San Francisco, about five years now uh, with field operations. And you're an SCC graduate, too, at LSU, uh, Stephen Austin I, University as well. So I am. I am. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a, a SEC, SEC all the way. So it's the only way to go, my friend. Um, <laughs> you've been working on Pier 70, a 28 acre mixed use development waterfront project and the Presidio Tunnel in uh, a tunnel tops in San Francisco. So that must keep you pretty close to home with the second project. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So we wrapped up tunnel tops. Um, well, we're, we're actually uh, starting phase two of the tunnel tops uh, currently, but wrapped up the main project last year. Uh, and that's been been quite a fun one to watch watch grow in. Um, and I'm sure we'll get to talk a little bit more about the, the planting there as well. But it's a pretty unique site in San Francisco. I understand you're also a moderately frequent visitor to Marfa. How is that? Uh, how is that? Uh, um, yeah, no, Marfa. Um, it's been kind of in my in my background since I was a kid. I used to I grew up going to Big Bend uh, mm -hmm. to the national park and mm -hmm. started going to Marfa in the mid '90s, uh, and then worked at the Chinati Foundation um, for a bit in the early thousands. And it's you know the, the high deserts a really unique uh, environment, and the combination of the ecology of the Chihuahuan Desert and then also the you know the the artwork. And kind of our community there is really unique and yeah, it really is uh, there's nothing like it i don't think anywhere yeah. um but you are quite uh, passionate about large-scale public art i understand yeah no that's i'm a, I'm a big donald judd fan and uh, mm -hmm. among others but um mm -hmm. yeah marfa is a unique place to kind of experience uh that type of work uh, yeah, in person fantastic. fantastic stuff well you guys are uh you know from my perspective are are, are younger but you've been around the block a bit so um, uh, appreciate the work that you're doing. So can you can you tell us how uh, maybe each of you tell us a little bit about since you you come from uh, a moderately advanced degrees in in landscape architecture and planning, um, how, how does uh, actually getting into practice differ from academics? What was what, what's been kind of striking to you uh, and perplexing or or an opportunity? How, how do you how do you see that transition? Uh, how is it different being in practice from being a student? Well, I'll start. There's Alejandro. <laughs> um, I would say that, you know, it, things um, in design school are a lot more flexible. Let's just start with that, right? There's, uh, that is the moment where you want to have the most um, imagination, where you want to, you know, have your imagination run wild with your projects. And obviously, when things come to reality, you know, the, the, the challenges are what kind of set the parameters of your projects, right? The challenges of uh, the actual site implementation, the challenges of um, the reality of the environment of where you're implementing your projects, the challenges associated with um, your clients and your, and your budgets, right? I think that's, that's the biggest, I would say, the biggest difference, obviously, coming from the academic world into the actual real world of landscape architecture. You're kind of dealing with real people too. I mean, I know when I was in getting my undergraduate degree in landscape architecture, the, the, the biggest threat to me were the graduate students in architecture who would come in and, you know, crit your, 
your work and there was really no real interaction uh, like there is uh, in the field. Um, there, there is a, there is a rift. I mean, I don't know if you experienced this Alejandro, but there's a rift between uh, contractors and uh, designers frequently. I guess it's in the, the uh, conceptualization of the work and the designing of the work versus the actual implementation and, and structural creation of the work. Um, have you, have you found that to be a, a problem periodically? So, I mean, I would say that one of the things that we pride ourselves of here at Field Operations is that we can actually, you know, bridge that gap. Let's say that you may imagine between a very conceptual thinking and actual implementation and the reality of tectonics. Um, that's why we've actually been able to put together a really great team, including Seth and Justin, that allow us to translate these very kind of big ideas, um, these very, um, in many cases, you know, innovative ideas into the real world. Um, and yes, obviously, there's always going to be this tension <laughs> between the designers and those that are implementing and doing the work on the ground. But again, because we've been able to um, put together a great team here at Field Operations that, you know, has the capacity to translate the design into into the real world. And I would want to hear more from Seth and Justin about this. Yeah, sure. This is this is Seth. And I'm, you know, kind of the the difference from academics to getting things implemented, you know, at, at this scale, especially at the scale that we tend to work at these days. Is, is a pretty big swing for me, especially I, my undergraduate is in horticulture. So I came, you know, from a, I wanted to run a nursery and maybe, maybe run a botanic garden at some point in my, in my youth. <laughs> and that, um, you know, led me to landscape architecture, but, uh, you know, the transition, you know, as, as Alejandro mentioned from kind of the freedom, I think that you take for granted in design studio uh, into you know, what is basically a, a highly political process in terms of, you know, trying to build any significant project these days, you know, uh, just the kind of soft skills in terms of people management and that combined with contractors, which, you know, there can be friction with, um, along with, you know, the regulatory environment in a lot of the places we're trying to build uh is is a pretty does it inform change. your thinking though seth when, when you're teaching you're teaching at stephen austin or your boston architectural college are you are you bringing some yeah of i mean I, you're experiencing to the to, to what you're teaching and are you teaching classes or are you doing just seminars or what are you doing there no so i, I haven't taught recently um but when i when i was teaching um there I, a few studios but primarily uh seminars and, and lectures mm -hmm. and so it, you know trying to bring back some enough kind of practical experience without scaring people away from <laughs> from reality um mm -hmm. so it's kind of in small doses but you know not trying to sugarcoat the the process because it is yeah. you know you, you have to be committed to to a long arc to get a lot of these projects built so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i'll um i'll add alan that um building on kind of what alejandro set said you know you, you always want to dream big uh, in academia, you don't want to stifle creativity, and then kind of the leap into the professional world. Um, a lot of it has to do, and I'm thinking about planting specifically. You know, it's it's the time, the timing, and availability, and how that may affect a big picture idea 
Um, but you know the the challenge is kind of keeping the big picture idea together and being able to adjust and and kind of pivot in the moment in the field as that's like we do it today. Yeah, I think you know it's it's interesting to the uh, and I I'm, I assume this is kind of a universal thing or a national thing that um, the transition from academics into the practical aspects of actually working. Um, there's just so much that just can't be conveyed in an academic setting, you know, uh, maybe an internship is the closest you'd get to to understanding that aspect of the transition. Do, do you all feel uh, having a, a, a good background in horticulture, it seems um, that there's a sufficient enough connection with the uh, flora, with the uh, uh, students coming out of school, or do you feel like that's something that that you really have to knuckle down and uh, reinforce when you're bringing in someone new? That's a great question, Ellen. I would say that, you know, just like in a way architects, their their materials, their facades become one of their main kind of the material that they work with. For us, planting is one of the main material, if not the main material in many cases. And the reality is that in academia, that's not really fully explored to its full potential. And it is through the work, the day-to-day -day work that we do in actual projects where at least myself have gained a lot of experience on planting. Uh, I did not have mm -hmm. a horticultural background. I have always been obsessed, I'd say, with biology and anything that has to do with biodiversity. And that's that kind of, um, you know, that, that frame of mind is what allowed me to get um, very excited once I got into the real world and learned a lot about planting and soils and all of the different conditions that we need for that. But it is true that that in a way we generally feel is lacking in academia and could be definitely reinforced. Yeah, it feels oh, like if you have, if you have a good if you have a good background in it, it usually is a function of something else that you did, as opposed to your LA degree. I think uh, for that aspect of the knowledge, it seems. I'll add that you know every school uh, has different strengths, right? And and that plays a big part. That some schools may focus uh, prioritize design or theory, while as others you know prioritize the technical side of the profession. All kind of seeking a, a well-rounded program and degree they can offer. Um, and I think, you know, we all three kind of represents, represent varied kind of backgrounds, but I'd say the common denominator between all of us um, is, is horticulture and plants are a lifelong passion. There's no beginning or end to that. Um, you know, there are people that dedicate their entire career and life to horticulture. Um, and I don't, I don't want any of us to sit here and act like we are the experts, um, but we have a passion and I think that's what drives us. Yeah. I guess, I guess my question, if I could jump in on that is how do you, since you deal with so many different parts of the country, uh, in the world, actually, how do you actually, uh, obviously the plants are going to change, but how do you actually distinguish when you're dealing with soil mixes and the type of climates that you're going to be involved with? Do you actually have people on staff that are particular to those areas, or do you look towards experts in those areas that'll help to um, uh, inform you as far as what's actually needed? How do you, how do you go about that? I, I, 
I would say there's a mix of different approaches. And I'll tell you, for example, recently, one of the approaches for the area of the world where I'm currently working on, which is the subtropic tropic of South Florida, where a lot of my projects are currently there um, at the moment. Um, we have, for example, collaborated, not necessarily with a horticulturalist, um, but with a botanical garden, for example, as someone that can guide us through um, the palette uh, of our different projects. I would say that, for example, there's um, two different realities to planting that we're currently doing in South Florida. One that is more catered towards you know, our residential mixed use, um, very urban uh, planting, which borrows a lot from other parts of the tropics, for example, not, it's not necessarily a fully native palette. Um, and that's where, you know, we get a lot of inspiration from um, other projects and other landscape architects. And then there's other, there, there's a, the other projects that are more like renaturalization projects, right? Where we are trying to bring back uh, some of the historic uh, planting communities that existed in the area that have completely been decimated. And that's where we really need uh, the help. For example, in this case from uh, Fairchild Botanical Gardens down in Miami to help, you know, help uh, help us uh, come up with a, with a proper palette, uh, help us come up with the proper soils. Um, and, and yeah, go ahead. Uh, Bill. Well, I was going to say, that's awesome. I mean, I, I love the idea that you're pulling into the botanical garden. So, uh, as a protocol, then, as you enter a new area, I'm assuming because you're so, you know, you've done this for quite a while, do you automatically go look for these people? And are they part of the team then? Do you actually say, hey, how many hours do you need to help us with this planting? How, how does that actually work? Yeah, Justin, you want to talk a little bit about Amazon? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I can do that. Yeah. Um, I, a couple things. Um, every project's different, obviously. Every region offers new opportunity. Uh, I love that uh, Alejandro brought up botanical gardens because I think that is is key. Wherever we're working, you know, as part of a kickoff meeting trip, we always include visits to the local botanic gardens. Um, I, I also want to um, expand on that and just say leveraging the horticulture industry on every project is huge. Um, because like I said earlier, these are people that have dedicated their entire life uh, to plant production in a region. And uh, I, I have some of the best conversations with uh, nursery men and women for projects because, um, you know, they're out in the field, out in the hoop houses all day, and they love to talk about plants. So, you know, just cold calling nurseries is a great way to generate conversations, ideas, build connections. And then to your point, Bill, um, it creates opportunities for people to join the team if the situation's right. For uh, our project in Arlington, Virginia, uh, for Amazon's HQ2 Met Park um, project, one of the first visits we did, we went to the uh, United States Botanic Garden and toured their native garden. Nice. Uh, a gentleman, gentleman by the name of Bill McLaughlin, who's the curator of plants there, um, toured us around. And Bill was retiring, which set up an opportunity for him to become a consultant and a member of the design team. And we did bring him on. Uh, he's an expert in native uh, plants 
of the Mid-Atlantic and became you know, a huge member, key member of our team as we're trying to curate and build our own plant list. Uh, for the program. I love this conversation because I think that this is, you know, Alan and I have talked to others about this whole idea of not getting enough training and education in horticulture when you're in the LA schools and, and this whole thing, but to actually, you know, have a, a, a cognizant decision to go out and search for the horticulturalist in a particular area that you may not be familiar with because you're taking on a project in an area that you didn't grow up in or, you know, you don't know the plants. That's an awesome... And and Bill, I would say that even if we knew the area, I mean, our most famous project, as both Alan and you mentioned before, the Highline, we that was that was a team formed already with Pete Udolf in in mind, right, right from the right from the start. It wasn't an, an afterthought, um, and and that approach is is also another approach that we do in other projects, just like Justin said. Every project is a little bit different, right? So in some cases, we might collaborate with a botanical garden. In some cases, we have from day one, someone that specializes in horticulture in a specific region. And in some cases, it's part of your client team. And maybe, Seth, um, you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and, and uh, Justin, maybe you can elaborate a little bit as well. But, you know, for the, for the Presidio, which is a, it's kind of a unique entity in the world. It's a, a national park, but it's also a self-sustaining uh, uh, enterprise. You know, they have 1300 acres and uh, a very uh, kind of robust internal kind of ecological restoration program there. And so from the beginning of the competition for that project, which was 2013, 2014, um, you know, their in-house ecologists, botanists were kind of at the table um, along with you know our own horticulture team, which we which we brought in uh, Bob Perry and Richard Turner, uh, John Greenley, who all you know. So we we were kind of uh, benefited from almost too much horticultural talent at the table for that one. But it was you know a, again to what Justin had mentioned about you know the the trust had or has ecologists on staff who have worked you know in the park since it was an army base, so 20, 30 years of experience trying to kind of bring back, you know, indigenous species, um, you know, in a man, it, it is not wild in, in, in a sense, but it is a managed, you know, kind of restoration effort. Um, and so, you know, they were working hand in hand with us, you know, from the beginning to develop, you know, a very specific plant palette down to, um, you know, seed and cuttings that were collected on the site or, wow. you know, within a hundred yards of the site um, mm -hmm. and then grown on, you know, at the nursery, in, at, at the project and so um that type of collaboration when it happens you know and, and again not every project gets that kind of level of um of knowledge but it is it's a pretty unique um kind of experience to make sure that the... i would i would think that one of the problems that would arise all the time is that you're dealing with quite a bit of plant material um and so and, and if you're out of area the project hasn't been let yet necessarily, so so there's all that, but it has to be specified. Do you find that you have to be really nimble with the planting plans in order to make sure you can be you can ensure that enough material is going to be available at the right varietal or whatever? Yeah, and and that we I think that's a challenge that all three of us can, can speak to at some level. You know, we on our larger projects we do typically try to contract grow as much as possible for that very reason, and I would say that you know, again, depending on the project can be fairly successful, but you're mm -hmm. never, I would say if we get 70% of kind of what our understory palette might be. So we may have, 
you know, 50 to a hundred species. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we get, if we get 75% of that, that's a success. Right. Mm-hmm. And then there's mm-hmm. always kind of this crop failure market, all of those other right. things happen yeah. that you kind of, to, to Justin's point earlier, you have to kind of pivot uh, in the moment and, you know, maintain kind of whatever that, that big design idea was if possible. Uh, but, but deal with the realities of, of yeah. you know, growing plants. <laughs> I, I, I want to add to that, though, because it reminds me of a project, a different project in L.A. Um, and I was trying to track down some plant material that I was told didn't exist. Um, and, you know, I ended up emailing the Fern Society in Seattle looking for resources uh, of material down in L.A., this woman responded. She put me in touch with just this gentleman. It, it didn't seem like it was going to really pan out. It turns out that this guy is a wholesale um, broker and is providing all of the tree ferns for all of the projects in Southern California. Um, and I, I kind of bring it up because it's, you know, I mentioned reaching out to people it, as landscape architects and as uh people with a passion for plants, you, you always have to build your network and not be afraid to just kind of reach out and 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 kind of do your own due diligence yeah. on a project. You, you never know where it's going to come from. Do you, do you, do you three still uh, uh, frequent cocktail parties where you introduce yourself and people think you're a gardener? Is that, uh, is that still true? <laughs> I, I definitely get a lot of rose questions. Uh, yeah, roses. <laughs> What's going on with my roses? <laughs> Yeah, I think that, less okay. and less, oh, Alan, it happens. Um, wow. I think the profession, um, more and more people are understanding what we do on a day-to-day basis. Um, but it is true that, yes, you do get questions uh, about roses and, and you know, and, and philodendrons in my case, right? Um, yeah, it's your cross to bear, Alejandro. I mean, you know, everybody's yeah. got to go, go through it. You know, I really, you know, I feel like it's a golden profession to be in as difficult as it is, as big a bag of cats as it is. I mean, you're dealing with, you know, water and fire and concrete and steel and electricity and uh, all of the knowledge of hydraulics and airflow and weather and climate and your your execution personnel don't speak your language necessarily. And the product uh, can die on you. Yeah, your product can die on you, and you're also you're also uh, immersed into uh, uh, discussions with a lot of folks that are very creative and ego driven, and the whole thing is just fraught with failure. So, kudos to you three for uh, keeping it together at the scale that you are. You know, I really appreciate it. We are going to yeah, take it's... a little break here and uh, come right back. We're back with uh, three senior associates with field operations, and uh, we're here with Justin Jackson, Alejandro Vasquez, and Seth Rodolfo Bates. Uh, I'm also here with my partner in crime, Bill Peregrine, and uh, welcome back, you guys. Um, so tell, tell me about um, career advice you'd give to a prospective new landscape architect coming out. Uh, doing an internship, starting for the first time at field operations. Um, 
not not to make the mistakes you made maybe or uh to make the mistakes you made uh is there is there any kind of advice you wish someone had given you when you were starting out that uh you would offer up now Alejandro, are you going to take that one first or justin <laughs> i have many mistakes i don't know if i would change them but <laughs> uh -huh. look i would say being completely honest and candid um at the start of my career, um, I did put it uh, above everything else, right? Um, and obviously you're excited um, for your future and the future that you have in that career itself. But um, being that what we do for the most part is public spaces, waterfronts, plazas, parks. I think one of the best advices that I would give someone starting uh, the profession currently is to actually enjoy those spaces, to actually go out as much as you can to explore as many of these public spaces. Um, and maybe, you know, you may, you may want to spend a little bit less time in, in the office <laughs> because ultimately that'll give you a really good perspective onto, onto these projects, right. Onto, you know, really informing your projects with, with, uh, through life experience. So walk, walk the whole underline back and forth, think hard about what you're doing. And then exactly. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Justin? You have, uh, you have some uh, past regrets you wouldn't want to repeat and uh, opportunities that you, you missed or, or it all was smooth sailing. <laughs> no regrets. I wouldn't call it smooth sailing though. Um, you know, I would maybe for somebody in school, um, you know, as a aspiring landscape architect, what I always tell people to really uh, try to create lasting and meaningful relationships with not only the their cohort but their professors. Um, you know, maybe that would be a regret is that I haven't stayed in touch as much as I could have with some of those people because um, they're just good resources. And, you know, building that network uh, at an early stage in your career in academia is just, um, I think it's just good advice. Mm -hmm. But you feel like the, the, the new graduates that you've seen in the offices, um, they're prepared? I mean, uh, 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 is, there, is there a common uh, uh, shortcoming that you're seeing that you'd, you, you'd like to see, you know, reinforced at an earlier stage? Uh, I think we, they're prepared, but, you know, we touched on it earlier. Grad school's a small moment in time. And, mm. you know, we, we live in a super complex, um, profession. So they are prepared, but you're never going to know all the plant material and all the things about right. planting design right. that you could. Right. Um, you know, and every program has their strengths. So some of them are going to come in more technically minded and be able to, to grade a site, you know, day one, whereas others may really struggle through uh, through a task like that. But yeah. Um, That's so true. Yeah. Great <laughs> site grading. That's a hard one. Yeah. Or could could be a hard one. But Seth, you mm -hmm. probably came in and you could do the grading right out of the gate, right? I mean, you were you were like you were the star I, I performer was, in the office. I was an anomaly in that regard, but I yeah, I did I did teach my graduate class grading, but uh -huh. that was that was more dumb luck than anything. Uh -huh. Just um, dump the soil over here and make it. Make yeah, it exactly. Yeah, that's uh, you know, this is this is how to read a topo signature, but 
no, I mean, I, I would, I would concur. I don't necessarily have regrets. I think, you know, I've made decisions based on personal life, you know, uh, situations early on in my career that I then spent, you know, the better part of a decade kind of coming back from, I don't regret that it led me to Marfa. So I, I, it's, mm. there's no, there's no downside mm -hmm. to it, but it did, you know, it just, it takes time. I, I think that was, you know, one of the things that I certainly, I was a very impatient person in school. I was, mm. you know, wanted to be the best, the fastest, all those things, and then get it into a profession where you don't really get to do much until you've practiced for 20 years, if you're lucky. Mm. <laughs> right? right. And so, right. I think there's a little, there's a little irony there uh, <laughs> that I chose landscape architecture, but, you know, you have to, you know, time is a resource and you have to use it well or use it wisely, but, you know, take, take the forks in the road along the way um, because those are, those are kind of key moments that they do change your trajectory sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, um, but you, uh, that creates you, a richer you, experience. Sure. But I mean, you, you, uh, I'm assuming in the work you did at Arlington, you, you walked Arlington and uh, did you? Did just, you... I mean, Justin spent quite a bit of time on the ground there. Mm -hmm. We, we mm -hmm. both worked at a previous firm together. So. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we spending, being able to spend time in, you know, to Alejandro's point, you know, the, the kind of premier, not necessarily premier, but, public spaces that are, you know, have an impact, whether that's, yeah. you know, an alley in, you know, Mexico city, or if it's, you know, times square, it doesn't mm -hmm. taking in as many of those places as you can certainly will inform kind of your, your design sensibilities and also what, you know, what's comfortable and what, what do people like? Where do people like to spend time? But you'll be, uh, you'll else? be, you'll be uh, a grandfather one day walking the, uh, <laughs> uh you know the 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 tunnel tops <laughs> and showing your hopefully so yeah, mean, you, might yeah. Be, you might be wheeling uh yourself down the underline there alejandro uh one day 30 years from now and uh saying you know i was i had a small part in this you know it's held up well and now it's right on the water i didn't who'd have guessed <laughs> exactly <laughs> i think one one additional thing that i would give as a piece of advice is this idea of which i'm trying to implement for myself more and more every day, which is radical collaboration. Mm -hmm. And is this idea that maybe actually in academia, you're almost taught that you're by yourself doing all of this work. Right. right. But in reality, the more that you collaborate, and if you collaborate in a very open way, um, in a very honest way with everyone, right? And we were talking about before uh, about horticulturalists or horticultural specialists, but with everyone, including your clients. Um, including the community, I think you just get the best results ever with your projects. Um, so this idea of radical collaboration would be another piece of advice to anyone that's entering the, the profession. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Um, well, uh, as a final question, uh, and let's keep going with you, Alejandro, what, what are you, uh, what are you reading and listening to these days? Well, um, currently reading, <laughs> I've, I've been made fun of uh, liking fungi a, a, a lot, um, and I'm currently reading uh, Entangled, Entangled Life uh, by Merlin Sheldrick. Uh, it's a fascinating uh, account of everything fungi and the, a world that we barely know 
much of and and actually has a really important uh, uh, role, let's say, in landscapes, right? And especially in our soils and in our planting. So I'm completely entangled myself in this entangled life book uh, by Sheldrake at the moment. Okay, we'll keep an eye on you since you you might be uh, <laughs> overly enamored with mushrooms. So <laughs> that's right. Uh, yeah, and what are we, what are we listening to? So what's on what's on the headphones uh, when you disconnect with us this afternoon? Headphones ranges from everything from my Cuban heritage music all the way to the latest electronic music. So I cannot pinpoint to one specific style or one specific artist. Uh, this is I'm open to everything. Mm -hmm. Very nice. You're in the center of music culture down there too. Fantastic. Exactly. How about you, Justin? Is it uh, is it the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or uh, Foo Fighters or what? What are we listening to there? You got headphones on now. Mm, I um, I've recently been listening to a band called Black Pumas. Yeah, they're out of Austin. I don't know if it sounds familiar to you, but yeah, my uh, daughters been... sent me their playlists and they're on there. Nice, been enjoying that lately. Fantastic. Uh, what am I reading? I do not have anything quite as fantastic as a book on mushrooms but i uh, i recently picked up dune it's an oldie sci-fi classic getting ready for for the new dune part two to come yeah out. but the the book is the book you know exactly. it really doesn't relate to the movie hardly at all you know yeah you gotta credit for the guy being totally insane and writing such a great book <laughs> um, you know the movie man so good on you how about you seth uh what is it taylor swift or uh no no taylor, Carey, no I'll, I'll um i actually I'll, I'll give a plug out to my my buddy's uh band in lower east side just released a new single called sunlight the wonder mm -hmm. came out on friday so i've had that on on repeat but um kind of like alejandro i'm, I'm a bit of a i'll listen to everything uh, under the sun, whatever the mood strikes, but that's but what comes on the radio the that, uh, you know, you're riding with someone in the car and they reach to change in channel and you slap their hand. What, what, <laughs> what, what song I, is that? Oh, I don't know right now. Mm, that's a, that's a tough call. I don't think I have one at the moment. I, uh, I always want to hear the next, the next song. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a chronic shuffler, unfortunately. I see. Yeah. Right. Short attention span for music. That's right. How, how that's about right. reading? Are you, uh, are you reading Grisham or uh, Moby Dick? Or <laughs> I, I, I do. I do like some John Grisham, but I currently I'm, I have two small kids. So reading is kind of a relative oh, luxury, but um, I'm making my way through uh, assembling California, which is John McPhee, mm -hmm. uh, which if he's a geologist kind of in mindset and training, and I just am fascinated by the geological time frame, especially given our current challenges with climate and living in a world that is not going to be recognizable. Um, it's always good to get a little perspective on the beginnings of things. Yeah, it's reassembling faster, faster and faster. And thank goodness it's being reassembled in large part by folks like you at Field Operations. We really appreciate the work you're doing and uh, uh, for not only making uh, the world a more attractive and useful space, but for bringing wildlife back to the city. Uh, we appreciate your work. Any any parting words there, Billy? Uh, I do have parting words, actually, because Alejandro brought it up. Are you familiar with Jeff Lowenfels? I am not. Now I'm going to have to. 
I'm going to have to read all about teaming this. with microbes <laughs> and teaming with nutrients. You know, there you go. I'm kind of known as a soil guy in the Northwest. You guys Pacific are separa separated at birth there, Bill and Alejandro. <laughs> or, yeah. We got a lot to talk about. That's right. <laughs> Count me out. It's a fascinating you world of fungi. Hey, but just to finish that up, you know, there are churches now in, in, in Washington state that can actually um, administer psilocybin. So great. As, yeah, that's great. <laughs> you have to join the church though. <laughs> of course you do. You probably have to tithe. <laughs> and they that's still a, get a tax break. Go figure. How does that work? Uh, there you go. That's, that's not a new thing, by the way. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's true. That's true. Well, we appreciate uh, John, all John, your, all your John Oliver's new thing uh, on uh, on his uh, show is on uh, on psychedelic uh, medical treatment, which is fascinating. So, and that'll be our next podcast, right, Alan? Uh, it might be if I can if I can manage it. Yeah. Be careful what you ask for. All right. All right. Thank you, guys. Have a great week, and uh, we appreciate you joining us.